Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Our speaker this evening received a Ph.D. in philosophy from the Catholic University of America in 1997. Dr. John Cuddeback writes and lectures on various topics, including virtue, culture, natural law, contemplation, and friendship. A third-order lay Dominican, he currently teaches in the philosophy department at Christendom College. His book, True Friendship, Where Virtue Becomes Happiness, was republished in 2010, and he actually does have copies here tonight, so if you'd like, they're in the back and we can talk more about that after the talk. Um, Dr. Cutterback also writes for his blog titled Bacon from Acorns, in which he publishes his own reflections on philosophy and the household. And Dr. Cutterback is an avid gardener, gardener and hunter, lives with his wife and six children in the Shenandoah Valley over by Front Royal. He's a frequent speaker for the ICC as well as one of our Magdal Apostolate professors. So we're really excited to welcome him back to the Institute of Catholic Culture. Please join me in welcoming back. Dr. Cutterback. Thank you. Thank you, Monica. Well, it's great to be with you. As I was driving through the beautiful hills of Virginia, leaving my family behind on a Sunday evening, going through my lecture in my mind, I thought to myself, who in the world would come out on a Sunday evening to hear this lecture. Of course, I got here and realized it's the food. <laughs> now it all comes clear. I, I, I see how this is, this is supposed to work, and now you're kind of stuck here. And they, Father Hezekiah locked the doors, if you don't realize that. Okay. Um, independence, a Catholic critique of freedom. Ladies and gentlemen, it's in the water we drink and in the air we breathe. Happiness is in doing what you want to do. It's in the air we breathe. It's in the water we drink. Happiness is in doing what you want to do. Happiness is in freedom. Question, do you think that happiness, you don't have to answer out loud, you, you can answer inside. Do you think that happiness is in doing what you want to do? I love these kinds of phrases. It's all in how you understand them. St. Thomas Aquinas would answer that question, yes, as long as you understand what he means, the answer would be yes. 
but the understanding that is in the air we breathe and in the water we drink is not St. Thomas's answer. It's a diametrically opposed answer. And that is part of, I dare say even central to, we are in an age of unprecedented unhappiness in an age with an unprecedented emphasis on freedom. So it's all in trying to get this straight. The truth, our Lord once said, will set you free. Those words clearly mean something very important. What exactly is the freedom that the truth will give. Clearly there is a sense of freedom that is what our life is about. And the truth will give us that freedom. My one goal here this evening, and it's not an easy one, is to try to come to a deeper understanding of freedom and servitude compare them, make a few distinctions, so as to try to understand what true freedom is, and thus likewise what true happiness is. Part of the drama of this situation, I begin by saying, is that a wise man will always realize we always have to have a master Human beings always have to have a master. Such is our glory. How can that possibly be reconciled with, but our happiness is in freedom? Somehow, wisdom, somehow we all have to be able to reconcile that. So I'm going to do something. I, I, in a few minutes, you might be thinking this was a foolhardy thing for me to try to do. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to get pretty philosophical here with you. I'm going to, I'm going to work you pretty hard, and, and for an after-dinner speech, um, uh, you might uh, come to the conclusion very quickly that I, I erred in judgment. But I'm going to do my best and try to, try to take you through a couple of key distinctions, because the intellect in seeing distinctions is able to see key truths. It's all in being able to make distinctions. One thing our society does not do is make key distinctions. So I'm going to go to St. Thomas. I'm going to try to use him to make a few distinctions. Before I do that, I'm going to give you something from the rule of St. Benedict. It's the first quotation on the handout I gave you. You perhaps have, have, have read this one of these great works of Western civilization. This is the prologue to the fabulously beautiful rule of St. Benedict, the rule for monks. He says, for we must always so serve him with the good things he has given us that he will never, as an angry father, disinherit his children, nor ever, as a dread lord, provoked by our evil actions, deliver us to everlasting punishment, as wicked servants who would not follow him to glory. I just want that to set the tone. There's an awful lot going on in there. He has called us to serve him and to follow him to glory. And somehow we have to reconcile that with an understanding of freedom. 
My main focus, ladies and gentlemen, just so you know, is going to be on the true sense of freedom and how we would try to enact that in our lives. It has some political implications. I am not going to focus on political implications. I'm going to mention civil liberty, but it's going to be in passing because to me, the root issue is how we understand what freedom is and then try to how, we, how we try to enact that in our lives and what difference it makes for human formation for ourselves and in a special way for our children. So that's what I'm going to go after here. All right, so to try to come to this deeper sense of freedom, we, we need to start to make a few distinctions. The first main distinction is what I'm going to spend most of my time on and try to get the most mileage out of, ladies and gentlemen, is between two kinds of freedom. This is a, this is a classic distinction that St. Thomas Aquinas makes. It's not an easy one. Freedom of choice versus freedom of excellence. Freedom of choice versus freedom of excellence. And the, and the text that I've chosen to help us do that, the text alone isn't going to do that, I'm going to kind of move through it with you, is this text from a commentary on St. John where he is talking about friendship and servitude and how they relate to one another. I'm going to go ahead and just read this paragraph out loud. It will just give you a little sense of what's going on. There's a little bit of technical terminology here that I'm going to have to take the time to try to explain to you, all right? First, I'm going to give you the paragraph should be known that he is properly a servant. So just so you can be prepared, watch a master at work who is extremely attentive to how to use words and how to use them well. It's not about the words, it's about the reality. There's a reality called freedom, there's a reality called servitude, but there's different kinds. If we focus clearly, we can sort that out. should be known that he is properly a servant who is not his own cause. Now, ladies and gentlemen, it's going to be the main philosophical point. In, in Latin, it's causa sui, a cause of oneself, causa sui. He is properly a servant who is not his own cause, while the free man is the one who is the cause of himself, causa sui. So the, the main thing to understanding St. Thomas's philosophical treatment of freedom is this Latin phrase, causa sui, being a cause of oneself. That's where I'm going to work you hard and look at a couple different uh, things that that can mean. There's a difference between the actions of servants and of free men, because the servant acts by the cause of another. The free, however, acts as a cause of himself, as much the final cause of the work as the moving cause. Now, that's where the technical thing begins. I'm going to come back and sort that out with you in a moment, but just note if you've ever studied anything of, of, of Aristotle, you bumped into his four causes. St. Thomas just named two of them. And that's going, to be, that's going to be the workhorse philosophically. And just, you know, if you, if you don't end up following the philosophy part of it, that's okay. I'm going to try to step back out then and draw some conclusions. But I'm just going to invite you to, to give it a, a whirl with me here. For the free man acts on account of himself because he is moved by his very own will to work. But the servant does not account, act on account of himself, but on account of the master not from himself, but rather by the master's will, as if in cooperation. But sometimes falls to a servant to act by himself insofar as he moves himself to work. This is a good servitude because it is moved out of charity to the doing of good works, but not on account of itself because charity does not seek that which is its own but that which belongs to Jesus Christ and the salvation of his neighbors. That was hard to follow. I know that you can feel that there's a lot going on in there, and I'm going to try to, I'm going to, try to sort it out for you. 
All right, so here we go. It's all in the notion of Kalzasui. The term Kalzasui might seem to be a contradiction in terms to be a cause of oneself. Technically, if you're a cause of yourself, there have to be some parts in you, and one aspect of you is causing something else in you. And in that way, a complex being can in some way cause itself, and that's not a contradiction. So in what different ways can there be a something be causa sui? Another way of saying causa sui is, is self-moving. Well, two main of the four causes of Aristotle are referred to here by St. Thomas. There's the final cause and the moving cause. If you've heard this terminology at all before, moving cause, another name for that is the agent cause. Another name for that is the efficient cause. The final cause is what's also called the end, the end of a thing. So we have two main causes here, the final cause and the moving cause. So something can be causa sui in one way or the other. That's going to be the key here, ladies and gentlemen, to get us two kinds of freedom, because watch how it's working. Free is causa sui. Free is being a cause of yourself in some sense. Now we're going to look at two different kinds of causes, so that in each of those two ways, something could be called a cause of itself. Is that much making sense so far? All right. So, here we go. The first is the more obvious, and that is talking about the moving cause or the efficient cause or the agent cause. So, this kind of cause, classic example that Aristotle would give is the builder who builds the house is the efficient cause of the house, the agent cause, the moving cause, the one that brings it about. Okay, so, what is something that is causa sui, cause of itself, as regards this kind of cause, the moving or efficient cause. Well, it's going to be something that moves itself to act. Well, here is where we get, ladies and gentlemen, what's called freedom of choice, which very often is also called simply freedom of the will. When we refer to ourselves as free, as having freedom of choice, what fundamentally are we referring to? What we're referring to is we move ourselves to act. We act by our own judgment. We make a judgment about what we're going to do, and then we follow it. If someone else made a judgment of how I was going to act, and then in some way made me do that act, you would say, I wasn't free. I wasn't moving myself. So freedom of choice is to be causa sui, is to be a cause of oneself, in the sense of moving yourself to action. So whatever I'm going to do, if I can make a judgment about what I'm going to do and act on that judgment, that's what we mean by freedom of choice. So I'm going to give you a little definition, a working definition of freedom of choice. The power to do this or that by one's own judgment. Freedom of choice, the first of our two kinds of freedom. The power to do this or that by one's own judgment. This is a freedom, ladies and gentlemen, that every human being that has come into the use of reason has by nature. It is just part of the gift to being a rational being. All human beings, by human nature, have free will. We are able, again, once we have the use of reason, a, a baby in utero doesn't have the exercise of free will yet, but it's coming as it gets to that point. How are we doing? So that's, that's freedom of choice. All right, now comes the harder one. The second sense of freedom is not quite as, as obvious. 
And so this is going to be the, the hardest part. Causa sui in the sense of a final cause. How can something be a cause of itself as regards the final cause? All right, quick introduction to you of what's meant by the final cause if you haven't seen this before. A final cause is a cause that moves something to action by being that for the sake of which. This is a famous phrase from Aristotle. St. Thomas follows him on it. This is extremely important at the end of the day. This, consider Aristotle and St. Thomas to be the most important of the, four final, of the four causes. That for the sake of which something happens. That for the sake of which something is done. So a famous example that Aristotle gives is to become healthy is the final cause of exercising. So watch, watch how we're going to put this. What's a cause? Why does one exercise? There's different ways of looking at what brings about exercising. The final cause is the that for the sake of which, the end that moves you to do this in the first place. I want to become healthy, I want to get in shape, therefore my desire for that end moves me to do something. All right, It moves me to this action. Why did the builder build the house? Remember, the builder is the efficient cause of the house. What's the final cause? There has to be some final cause, the that for the sake of which. For note, you wouldn't, there wouldn't be an efficient cause, the agent, unless there was some end, some final cause that moved him to act. If there's not some final cause, that for the sake of which the builder's going to build, he will not build. So the final cause is the that for the sake of which something is done. Aristotle says also that the final cause moves by engendering desire. The final cause is something desired, and so that moves us to act. So final cause is always functioning as something desirable for the sake of which we do something. So what's it mean then, that was your quick introduction to the final cause, what does it mean then for something to be causa sui, self-cause or cause of itself in the sense of a final cause. That which is desirable for its own sake is causa sui as a final cause. That which is desirable, I say again, for its own sake as opposed to desirable for the sake of something else. So watch, some things are a final cause because their desirability does not come from themselves, but from something else. Consider this, medicine. medicine is medicine desirable? In the sense of the term, is medicine desirable? Yes or no? Yes. yes. If it weren't desirable in some sense, you wouldn't take it, right? So let's just say, I'm going to town to get medicine. What was the final cause of my going to town? Medicine. That's what, it's the that for the sake of which. It's that which moved me to go to town. I desire to have medicine, so I go to town. Are we all together? All right. But is medicine desirable? Is it a final cause because of its own sake? Or does it get its desirability by a relation to something else? You know the answer to that question. The desirability of medicine comes from its relationship to something else, such as good health. Good health, ladies and gentlemen, then, can be a final cause in the sense of something desirable for its own sake. 
So watch. We now are, are set up. That, 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 that was the hard part right there. Now this can get super easy now, but that, 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 that right there was the, was, was the main difficult thing that we needed to do. Some final causes, some desirable things, some good things have their goodness from within, from being worthy in themselves. Medicine is not one of them, but good health, for instance, Virtue, for instance, is desirable for its own sake. Therefore, ladies and gentlemen, we go back to how do we begin? Free equals kalzasui. So now by seeing two kinds of kalzasui, we're getting two kinds of free. Our first kind of free was kalzasui as the efficient cause. And that's where we got freedom of choice. Now we're going to get a second kind of free. When something is worthy for its own sake, is desirable for its own sake, you can call it free. That's going to be a key point, ladies and gentlemen, of the evening. And I'm going to show you, you perhaps, th this is not so common in our usage, especially now. You, usage today, but watch, there's one that you will, have, you will have seen this before. The Latin word for free is liber. And so everyone has heard of liberal studies, liberal studies. When you refer to liberal studies, ladies and gentlemen, why are they called liberal studies? Note, you've got to watch how you use words. Liberal has in many ways become a bad word, right? But liberal originally means free. So, so why, are why is a liberal education distinguished from a technical education? A liberal education is one that you pursue, fill in what phrase I'm about to say right now, for its own sake. So liberal studies are called liberal because they're worthy for their own sake. You don't study them because you want to go off and do something else with it. You study them because they're worthy in themselves. A technical education is desirable, but it's not desirable for its own sake. You get a technical education because you're going to go and do something else with it. You get a liberal education because of who it makes you be. I'm just giving you that as an example of how the term liberal or free is used an extremely important part of our heritage, ladies and gentlemen, there. You see the word free was being used for something that is worthy, that is desirable for its own sake. How are we doing? Have I lost you? Raise your hand if I've lost you. All right, well, that was an unfair question. At the college right then, every hand would have gone up. And I would have said, tough, that's all right. Here we go anyway. All right. All right. I'm going to give you it now in view of the text that we just looked at from St. Thomas, where he distinguishes between a free man and a servant. I'm now going to wrap up for you in terms of two kinds of freedom that we've just been, been introduced to. What is freedom of excellence, ladies and gentlemen? Freedom of excellence is having achieved the state where you have done and become what is worthy in itself. Freedom of choice went with that other one where it just means 
you can move yourself to act. Moving cause. Freedom of choice, we can move ourselves to act. Freedom of excellence is where you have achieved the state of doing that which is worthy in itself. Now, let me, let me, we're going to come back to that, and we're going to use that a little bit more, because that's, you're going to, we're going to talk about some implications of that. But going back to the opening text, where St. Thomas distinguishes between the free man, another name here for the free man would be a master, kind of a master, free man and servant. How can we wrap up on that? Think about this. Who is a servant? By the way, in Latin, there's just one word for servant and slave. Same, same. Servant and slave. Slave normally has that more of a negative connotation to it, although does servant itself have a negative connotation? Maybe that depends on the age in which we live. Let's, let's look a little bit at this. So servant, in the pure full sense of servant, is going to be kalzasui in neither of our two ways. Right? Servant, in the full sense of servant, will be kalzasui, will not be kalzasui in either of the two ways that we've talked about. Whereas the free man is going to be Kalzasui in both of the ways we've looked at. Watch how that matches up and you'll see how this makes sense, thinking of servants and those who are free. Here's a servant. He doesn't act by his own judgment. If you're a servant, you, you act by someone else's judgment. Someone else tells you what to do, right? You don't get to act by your own judgment. You have to act by someone else's judgment. That's the main thing we normally focus on when you think of a servant. But look at this neat point about the second aspect. In certain ways, this could be the more onerous part of being a servant. And this has to do with the final cause, not with the efficient cause. So see, the servant doesn't get to move himself to act. But all that the servant produces, doesn't, he doesn't get to keep for himself. It's not for his own sake. All that he does is for the sake of the master. Gone over to the to the final cause, the that for the sake of which. So the actions of the servant are not done for his own sake. The servant has to do his actions for the sake of serving someone else. That's different from just someone tells you what to do. What this means is all I do is not for my sake, it's for the sake of someone else whom I serve. You see, that's servitude also. That, that is in the sense of the final cause. Master, or the free man in the total sense, he acts by his own judgment. He doesn't act by someone else's judgment. He acts by his own judgment. That's Kalzasui as the efficient or the agent cause. How about as the final cause? His actions are good because of themselves. The fruit of his actions aren't for the sake of someone else. He's free. His actions are all for their own sake, for his own sake. My actions, if I'm fully free, are not for the sake of someone else. They're for the sake of me. If I'm going to be free in the full sense of free, in that second sense. So the master is free in two senses. He does what he wants to do, and what he's doing is for his own sake. He acts by his own judgment. He gets to do. The free man does what he wants to do. And what he does is for his own sake. How are we doing? So again, let's wrap up. And we have two kinds of freedom, ladies and gentlemen, in man. And then I'm going to make a couple conclusions. Freedom of choice. Again, 
It's the power that we have to incline towards this or that, to do this or that, that's rooted in my own judgment. It's the following upon my own judgment. What's freedom of excellence? This is the state of having become truly good. Freedom of excellence is the state of having become truly good. It is the ability to do that which is truly good, which is desirable for its own sake. Freedom of excellence. Someone who can do that which is worthy in itself. This is freedom in the second sense, called freedom of excellence. All right, having done the hard work, you just did the hard work with me. I think we're, I think we're reasonably together here. Let's go ahead and apply this and just make a few conclusions. My first conclusion, ladies and gentlemen, which is perhaps the most important of the evening, is that in St. Thomas's understanding, the first freedom is for the sake of the second freedom. That's one of the most important things I could say here this evening. Why did God make us free? He made us free in the sense of able to act by our own judgment. Not because that's an end in itself, but so that we would act by our own judgment in doing what is truly good. That is why we have freedom of choice. Freedom of choice is not the goal. It's the means to the end of doing what is worthy to be done. So that's our first key conclusion. We were given freedom of choice so that we would choose, and here I'm going to use Aristotle's terms, and it, can be, and it can be said likewise in Christian terms using the same great term. We were given freedom of choice so that we could choose to be virtuous, which really is to choose to be yourself, according to Aristotle and St. Thomas. Second conclusion, freedom of excellence means, the second kind of freedom, doing what's worthy in itself. Freedom of excellence means being virtuous. So, so what am I going to start to suggest here terminology-wise? The man who is free in the more importance of the two senses of the term is the man who is virtuous. For now he has become that which he was designed to be. He is doing that which is worthy in itself, virtue. Thirdly, the second kind of freedom, this freedom of excellence, is one that we have to cultivate. It's one that we grow in. To be precise, freedom of choice was a natural gift given our powers that no one can take away from you. To be precise, it itself doesn't change. I, I'm always free in, in the sense of I, I will act by my own judgment. I mean, in, in, in the interior forum, I'm always free. No one could possibly take it from me. You cannot ever force me to choose anything full stop. And that's true of every human being. 
you can put a lot of pressure on me to choose something, but if I choose it, I chose it. Now, you still might say that was under constraint, and that is, of course, important. But nonetheless, the actual choice is always still mine. So the freedom of choice itself is just a given aspect of the powers God has given us. That's not something that we cultivate and grow in. Freedom of excellence, because of course you've seen here how we've connected it with virtue, is indeed something that we need to be cultivating. You and I need to become more free. But that doesn't mean we need to become more self-determining, self-moving, so much as we need to be better at doing what we were made to do, which is actions that are worthy in themselves. Go to my fourth conclusion. Here's a point that will give us particular insight into our age, the age in which we live. To the extent, so I'm, I'm stealing this point from Plato, and I'm going to tell you where I've stolen it from in, in, in Plato. Everything I say to you is, is, well, the word stolen is not the right word, is, is lifted <laughs> from much better thinkers than I am. But to the extent that we lose the sense of the great good that humans are designed for, to the extent that we lose an understanding of that good for which God made us. To that extent, we will tend to turn towards the first kind of freedom and make it be more important. Do you hear what I just said to you? To the extent that we don't understand the second kind of freedom, we humans will tend to throw the switch of saying, we'll emphasize the first kinds. Plato made this very, very clear in Book Eight of the Republic, where, paraphrasing Plato, he said the following, when men have lost sight of true human greatness, they become fixated with freedom of choice. I'm gonna say that to you again. When men have lost sight of true human greatness, they become fixated with freedom of choice, the first kind of freedom. We become fixated with my dignity is in doing what I want to do. I am self-determining. No one can take this from me. This is who I am. This is what's most important about me. And if you in any way try to hinder my self-determination, my choices, you are threatening my greatest dignity. Do you hear what I'm, what I'm saying to you? This, this, is, this is extremely important, ladies and gentlemen, because it's, it's like there was this danger written into this very rich, complex notion called freedom. I give you, we were made for freedom. Isn't that, that line from Martin Luther King, it, it, it has to give you goosebumps, doesn't it? I mean, it, it, it rings so deep that one day one might be able to say, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. But what is that? How many have made the mistake of thinking it's freedom number one. It's just, I get to say what's going on here, right? I get to do what I want to do. 
at least no matter what, I know I'm free, right? Now, I, 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 so I could be provocative here, and, and, this, and this, this is a whole area. I'm going to just say a few things pointing out in that direction. You can see where this can become a dangerous politically, where then the emphasis in a civil society just becomes what's most important about a civil society is just are there freedoms? Do people get to choose to do what they want to do? If I'm an American, at least I know I'm free. I just want to complicate our world a little bit. What do we think we mean when we say that? Do you ultimately judge a political order fundamentally by how free people are simply in the sense of they can do what they choose to do? Plato pointed out in Book 8 that whole social orders are based upon that. That is what Plato actually, again, we have to watch our words, but that's what Plato called democracy, where people set up as an idol freedom itself and make freedom itself be the goal. And we're not going to be able to go into, okay, how, how does this relate to, to our American system, but I think I, I could say this safely to you. It certainly is a danger inherent in the American understanding to, to fall into that. Right? And you already notice how some of the things that I've said sound like a lot of political rhetoric. The, the clear thing that you know people are going to agree on is we simply need to defend freedom. But particularly if we are not able to make a distinction between these two kinds and see the intrinsic ordering between the two, that the first is for the sake of second, and we have the possibility of real catastrophe. In a similar vein, when we lose a sense of man's greatness and end being virtue, we become less amenable to receiving direction or restriction from others, and authority tends to become intrinsically negative. Do, do you see how in our in our society, and just to, just to point in one important direction, in general, authority is looked upon as a necessary evil, as something in general always to be limited. Right? It's absolutely central to youth culture that authority is a negative influence. Now I'm going back, ladies and gentlemen, to my points of it's in the air we breathe. It's in the water we drink that your happiness will be in your figuring out simply what you want to do, and you don't need the direction of elders. You don't need law and the restrictions of custom and the role of authority to direct you in your use of freedom. Rather, you just need to have your own space for your own clarification. Again, what was, what was my point here? When we've lost a sense of what the true end of man is, or what I'm calling freedom of excellence, then we're going to ourselves, or our society, or that family, whatever that community, is going to tend to reject the importance of the role of authority. Because, of course, authority, ladies and gentlemen, and strong customs are precisely what guide freedom of choice be exercised well so as to become the freedom of excellence. 
without the right direction of authority and good custom, freedom of choice will never be able to come. Freedom of excellence. We make here now a kind of final little little point or two. So moving to a conclusion, I still have a, have a little bit of a case uh, to make to you. Let's paint the picture of full freedom now. Try to bring this together and give us something beautiful that we can focus our attention on and try to grow in. And because ultimately I'd like there to be a practical payoff. If we see the point here about what true freedom is, how would we live our lives differently? How would we set our attention on trying to get that? So let's just paint a little picture of what it looks like. Those of you who had occasion to st study a little bit of Aristotle's understanding of virtue, we'll, we'll, we'll see some nice connections here. God wants us, I'll put it this way, God wants us to do what is truly good. In fact, paradoxically, he has commanded us to do what is truly good. But he wants us to do it out of our own desire. It sounds like a very, very simple point, but this, this, is, this is where it comes together and this is where you're going to be able to understand why St. Thomas's answer to my provocative original statement was actually yes. Again, I say Saint, that God wants us to do what is truly good, but he wants us to do it because we want to. He wants it to be flowing out of our own deepest desire. When we're just on the way to virtue, and this I think it's fair to say is all of us, when we're on the way to virtue, to holiness, isn't it the case that we often, we often choose to do good things even though we don't really want to do them? Right? Can, can everyone relate to that? Question, is it good to choose to do what is good even if you don't want to do it? Is that a good thing to do? Yes. I agree. But what caveat am I about to make right now? St. Thomas is going to point out that is, you are not then fully what? Free. You're not fully free. Why? Because you're not doing what you really wanted to do. And that's not to be fully free, is it? If we're doing what is good because we have to, but not because we want to, then we are not fully free. It, if we are not choosing what is good, ultimately because we want to, we're not as free as God wants us to be. Now, of course here, ladies and gentlemen, let's, let's get something very clear that's obvious. Right? This is the type of thing that takes a lot of work to convey to children. Whew. <laughs> Sometimes you have to do what is good even though you don't want to because that's the key step to getting to where you do want to. But, but of course, it's not an excuse to not do what is good because you don't want to, thereby saying, well, I wouldn't be free. I'm made to be free, right? This, this is beautiful. You're re you ready for the real, the real zinger? St. Thomas, in, in, the second, in the second text, it's a little bit longer. 
ma makes this point. But the bottom line he says is this. What about, some, what about the person who has bad desires? <laughs> Do you know any of them? <laughs> all right. Good. All right. So we're all on the same sheet of music. What about the person who has bad desires? When he chooses to do what he wants to do, is he free? Leave it, leave it, if you ask that to St. Thomas, you know what he's going to say to you. He's going to say, yes and no. <laughs> it's all in seeing the difference. He is not free. Well, how is he free? He's free in an important sense. He's doing what he wanted to do. And that is a freedom. Are you ready? This is the one that's the, that's the back hair raise on your back point. But he's not doing that which is the deepest desire of his own heart. His own God-given heart. He is not doing the desire of his own heart even if he doesn't know that. And so he is not free, for he is not doing what he was made to do, even though he's doing what he wants to do. He's free in one sense. He's not free in the other. And very simply, the goal of mankind is very simple, ladies and gentlemen, in view of the points that we've just made right here. Two things are supposed to converge. The deepest desires that God has put in our heart, which corresponds to all the laws that he has given us. This, this is the dramatic thing. Every law that God has given us is about our own deepest desires, whether we know that or not. And the only way to be free is to make those desires my desires. And then I'll be free. For I will always do what I want to do. And what I want to do is what God made me to do, my true self. How are we doing? Let's just circle back then. Let's just, let's just circle back and think again then about St. Benedict's and the line that St. Benedict gave us in his rule. I, did, I didn't read you those two paragraphs from St. Thomas. I was reading in your eyes. Okay, we've done enough of that technical stuff. All right. So, so those of you super nerds, you have it on the paper. So you can, you can go home and you can read those two paragraphs. Although, although just before we close, I, I, I do just need to, this is, I, I, okay, no, this isn't just for super nerds. You're gonna, you're gonna, this is so beautiful. The opening line of the second main quotation, meaning towards the bottom of your first page. We must observe, however, that the sons of God are led by the Holy Ghost, not as though they were slaves, but as being free. For since to be free is to be cause of one's own actions, in Latin that just says causa sui. 
we are said to do freely what we do of ourselves. Now this is what we do willingly. And what we do unwillingly, we do not freely but under compulsion. All right, he goes on, skip, skip the next one. Now the Holy Ghost inclines us to act in such a way as to make us act willingly inasmuch as he causes us to be lovers of God. Isn't that jaw-dropping? How does the Holy Spirit move us to act? He moves us to act in the most possible free way because he moves us to love something so that we'll act out of our own love. That's not to force, that's to invite. Do you see, do you see how, but it's ultimately about being able to do what God made us to do out of our own love. So I just, we, we, we just go back then in, in the spirit of St. Benedict there. Who, who is that good servant? The great paradox, ladies and gentlemen, is for human beings, freedom, our complete freedom, will always have this beautiful note of, I do what God has asked me to do. I was not the originator. Note how St. Benedict says, serve him with the good things he has given us. All we have is from him. It's all his plan. Our freedom is in being his servant. Do you see how it, do you see how it coincides? But to serve him in love is still to be a servant because you're doing what he has asked you to do. But we're doing it in love and it's what we were designed to do. And so in the spirit of St. Benedict, then we're not those wicked servants, we're the good servants who follow him to glory, which is his glory and our glory. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you very much, Dr. Cutteback. We have a question coming in online um, from Pat Smith, and he's asking, oh, you know what? I'm sorry, it's from Kathleen Sweeney. Pat Smith is writing online, and for those who don't know, he is the husband of one of our board members, so he is watching, and we do say hello to you, Pat. <laughs> but Kathleen is asking, are those who work in assembly lines and manufacture manufacturer um, companies free if not using their judgment about the work they do? Um, well, of course, there's, 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 with both senses of freedom, there's, there's levels. And so there's always a, s a certain amount of freedom, but if you're going to, if we wanted to look reflectively at, at uh, comparing different kinds of work and what kinds of work might be more humanly fulfilling uh, to the extent that one can have one's own judgment and imagination and creativity more involved. I think it's, you could say there's a greater level of, of freedom. But there's a beautiful other side of, of e e even if you're in the most kind of abject assembly line kind of situation, one can act with love and still be acting freely in an important sense. So th th these are complex. Thank you. 
for those who, who understand that true happiness resides in virtue as a final cause, the logic is easy. But how do we communicate to those who believe that true happiness or their happiness resides in another cause that they are not truly free, that they are not as free as they think they are? That's a great question. Um, and of course, that's, 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 that's so incredibly rich because it's, that's basically as deep as asking, how, how, do, how does it come about that a human being understands who he is and what his own happiness consists in? And I think we have to be careful at times. It's appropriate to ask, what can we say to people? How do we try to convey, particularly in, this, in, in an age that's, that's, where there's such darkness and they don't understand? Sometimes in humility, we have to realize it's not as though we're going to have some argument that's the silver bullet. Here, here's the syllogism. Here's the proposition. Here, just don't, don't you see this? I mean, those of us who are parents know, what does it take to form children so that they see, so that they see who they are? Right, so so, so you, 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 I, I just say, great question. We should be thinking. We should be praying. We should be reflecting. My one quick thought would be, I think, particularly in an age of such darkness, it's going to be primarily by living it. I don't think it's going to be primarily by arguments. It's primarily by showing them human happiness in action and, and, and as it were, then reaching out to them in love. I mean, and, and, you know, similarly with, with children, who have, our children who have so much negative things being patterned for them. How do we form them? I'd I love to put it this way, if you may, if you give me 20 seconds on this. One, one application we talked about to raising children. How do we get our children to the point, not just to where they will do what is right, but they want to? I mean, that, 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 that opens the whole beautiful area of the richness of formation. That's just raising children, that's education in general. How do you move people to see, to be moved by the truly good life? We have to have the examples of it. We have to have the images of it. Thank you for that. Hi, good evening. Hi, good evening. Um, I, I'm so enthralled with this beautiful relationship God has with us that he um, desires that we come to him willingly and love. And I was wondering if you could compare two young lovers in that, that glimpse of what it means to love so purely and to want to give so willingly back. And I thought of Romeo and Juliet where the world around them with the families brooding, is that kind of an idea of, the, of the, the, that type of pure love that you were talking about, God giving us that desire and wanting us to do what's right? That, yeah. I, I, I like very much what you're saying. In a sense, by asking me about Romeo and Juliet, I happen to have some particular thoughts about Romeo and Juliet, which are distracting me at the moment. Um, <laughs> um, so it's hard for me to just go, yeah, but nonetheless, Nonetheless, I'm not, con I'm not convinced that Romeo knows what love is. All right, so that's, so that's part of my problem. But, I, sorry, I'm going to let that go. Um, <laughs> your, your point is lovers who have this kind of, we all know there's certain immaturities connected with that, but just kind of let's, let's, let's purify out that because there is something so wonderful in the kind of just being ab absorbed, moved by the goodness, so in it, so gift of, to one another. I mean, yes, and of course, 
you know, God, God uses that nuptial imagery of, him, of, of his relationship with us, right? And, and, and isn't it, it's for anyone in a, in a beautiful marriage, isn't it interesting to think that even that, even that does not capture it. I, I'm so glad to hear en enthralled. It, it, it is enthralling. We need to be enthralled. And if we're enthralled, people will see that we're enthralled, and that will help them be, be enthralled. So, yeah, thank you. Hi. Thank you Hi. for your great talk. Well, you're welcome. Um, so you mentioned that making freedom of choice an end makes authority a negative. And you mentioned about authority structures and customs and elders and whatnot. And so my question is, what happens when those authority and customs have become corrupted? Wow, boy, that was a great question. That's just a great question. Um, you, you put back together a couple, you, you saw a couple of the key things there. Custom is, is, is by the way, a, a key term in Aristotle. It means a lot. There's a lot of things that, that are not put into law but needs to be governed by custom. One great example of that is, for instance, the realm of how young men and women interact with one another. In general, there's not laws, civil laws about that, but there should be very strong customs. And the custom has a kind of force of law. That's a quotation from Aristotle and St. Thomas. Good customs should have a kind of force of law. You know how you can picture kind of elders saying, we don't do that. It's not, it's not, because, it's not because you're going to be carted off to jail, but no, you, you don't do that because it's of custom, right? But that, that by and large has been smashed. And now, and now we have new customs, and this is an area of particular my interest in because it's just so painful. The, the relationship of, of young men and young women that is, should be always very challenging, but oh, it should be such a beautiful part of human life. And, it, and we have catastrophic customs where even our own, our own children are swept. It's in the air they breathe that, that follow, follow your, your, these, these strong desires that are coming out right now at this particular age, so you just, just follow them. This is why custom always had to be very strong, particularly at that age, for, for young people to start to teach them, even if you don't feel that this right now, you're gonna, you have to follow the custom. All right, so I'm not addressing your question at all. I just went on um, <laughs> telling you what a good question it was. Um, any others? No. So, I, what, honestly, you pray, and I, you seek out friends and other families where you, you start anew. Aristotle has a great line where he says, if the laws and customs of the broader society are falling apart, at least you must band together with those of like judgment, and you do your best. What more can you do than do your best? to try to convey, I mean, it brings tears to the eyes to think of our, our children being, in so many ways, being whisked off by customs that are so bad. And so we, we have to try to show it to them. We have to try to teach them. We have to try to encourage them. You try to get them around other adults whom they'll see. Right? It's, there's so much in that they need to see it. And, and, and so you, you try to, this is good literature. You know, sometimes you can learn of good customs, sometimes even in those good stories, the good literature. Ah, that's why they did that. That makes sense. But, but in any case, I love the question because knowing the problem is 50% of the answer. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Cutterback. Thank you. Thank you.
We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.